Today's show is brought to you by Mattress Firm. Connecting sleep to sports isn't easy, but here goes. Mattress Firm is America's neighborhood mattress store, and it should be your goal to check out the deals they have going on every day. Their mattresses are softer than your rival team's defense. They get a 10 out of tennis. You'll love your new bed. Okay, all terrible dad jokes aside, head to mattressfirm.com slash podcast and stretch your budget further than a gymnast before a floor routine. Welcome to the JJ Reddick Podcast, where I interview some of the biggest names in sports and culture, as well as give you an inside look at life in the NBA. Today, less big name in sports, more inside look at life in the NBA. I'm only kidding. Today on the show, 76ers guard TJ McConnell. I will say this. If I start like putting a few plays together and I like talk crap to the other team and I get the crowd going, like... They'll be like, you're playing great. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry, man. I just blacked out there. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't remember. I also talk with my fellow teammate about his journey from undrafted guard out of Arizona to third-year fan favorite here in Philadelphia. We also hit on his relationship with head coach Brett Brown and his experience playing on teams with no vets. That's up next. Hope you enjoy Welcome back to the JJ Reddick podcast. I've got a really fun conversation with my teammate TJ McConnell today. Before I get to TJ, I wanted to touch on a couple topics. First of all, this is the first podcast that I've actually recorded since the episode with Kyrie was put out. I actually recorded the Thierry Henry one first and then recorded with Kyrie the last night we were in London a couple weeks ago. So I haven't had a chance to really fully explain my stance on dinosaurs. I just want to be very clear about this. I do, in fact, believe that dinosaurs existed. I believe that dinosaur fossils are real. My intention with Kyrie, and I believe it was his intention as well, was just to talk about you know how we gather information in the digital age, where that information comes from. And the abundance of that information and how that information can inform us and shape our beliefs. And whether or not those beliefs are real or not is irrelevant because that information is out there and there are people that believe in that. I believe in dinosaurs. I kind of explicitly said that on the podcast, but I just want to make that on record. Dinosaurs are real. Secondly, had a bummer of an injury in our first game back from London against the Raptors, was just catching a ball on the wing, and DeLon Wright tried to get a steal, and as he kind of lunged past me, his knee clipped the side of my leg at the very top of my fibula, which is the outside bone on your lower leg, right below your knee. You have like a fibula, fibular head, and I had a small crack in that bone. And was out for a couple weeks. I played last night against Brooklyn in my first game back. Um, was on a minutes restriction, but other than some soreness today, it feels good. And just happy to be back on the court. I thought our team did a phenomenal job in the seven games that I was out. I was really happy to see 
Timmy and Justin get some extended minutes and, and both of them played really well and, and really happy for those guys. And I think it'll be a, a boost for our bench going forward. All right, without further ado, let's get to my conversation with TJ McConnell. I feel like we have like a budding bromance. And if either of us could act, we would have a phenomenal buddy cop show. Can I call you Tej? <laughs> yeah, Jage. <laughs> You've done a couple of podcasts before. On my drive down this morning from Brooklyn, I had the honor of listening to your live appearance on a Philly 76er specific pod called The Rights to Ricky Sanchez. Shout out, Rights to Ricky Sanchez. It was a live pod. How many people were there? I would say about 500. 500 people for this live pod. Was it a, it was at a bar or like an event space? It was an event space slash bar. Okay. And you had a couple beers during it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I had a couple brewskis during the podcast. We've got our, our Fiji and essential water on the table right now. We're not cracking beers on our forehead. It is 10 in the morning. Your appearance was legendary amongst the Philly faithful, not just for your proclivity to drop F-bombs. I actually, listening to your appearance on the Rice to Ricky Sanchez pod, I felt a little bit like you were speaking at a political rally, trying to rally your base. Like, universal health care. It was more like, fuck, universal health care. <laughs> All right. Let me say my piece on this one. Okay. So I went and I was told, you know, have some fun with it. Yeah. And did I maybe have too much fun? Yes. But... If I could do it all over again, I wouldn't change the way I acted, but I might take away a few of the F-bombs. <laughs> Reel it in. <laughs> Reel it in. But it was honestly one of the funnest things I've done. Just wanted to show the Philly people that I'm one of the bros. You are one of the bros. <laughs> you are one of the bros. I feel like there's a two F-bomb limit on any podcast appearance that I go on. One of the things that they said on the pod that I, I completely agree with is that you are sort of like an unlikely hero of the process. When Sam Hinky and, and Josh and Dave and the owners had this, had this vision of tearing this thing down to build it back up, they probably envisioned drafting unicorns in the top five, like Joel and Ben and Markel. I don't know that like, they envisioned you and like Covington, Rob, becoming really heroes of this process. So you're kind of like an unlikely savior. What is that like? It was actually difficult in the beginning. You know, Coach Brown says it all the time that me and Robert kind of came out of left field and just kind of ran with it. You know, when we came in my first year, we won 10 games. And I think people here were starting to get sick of me and people of the process and wanted to start winning. So I tried to prove to them that I belong here and wanted to stay in Philly. Let's talk about this journey, this unlikely journey. I want to start with your last game at Arizona. Sweet 16, Elite Eight? Elite Eight. Elite Eight. So you lose the game. For some reason, I was watching the game. I don't watch a ton of college basketball, but I'm watching the game. And I remember at the end of the game, Sean Miller took you out of the game. You got emotional. You were teary-eyed. And I've told you this before, so obviously don't take offense to this, but I remember thinking to myself, that poor kid, <laughs> that poor kid, that may be the last time he's going to play competitive basketball. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be completely honest with you. When I was coming out of the game, obviously emotions were high. Yeah. And 
mostly because I felt bad for Coach Miller. I just wanted to get him to his first Final Four and, you know, for Tucson. And second was there was a scary thought in my mind that this is the last time that I'm going to be putting a basketball jersey on, playing competitive basketball in an arena in front of a sold-out crowd. And you could say I was tearing up a little bit because of that, too. No, it's a scary thought. I mean, we probably all, I've probably had thoughts like that. Maybe not that dark. When? (laughs) Maybe not that dark. No, I I mean, like I think you said to me one time when you walked off the court, like you were like, Oh man, this is the last time I'm going to play in America. <laughs> I've certainly had that. So the process then from from that game where you're like, this may be the last time I'm going to ever play in America. I'm ever going to play in a packed stadium. To being, I believe, the last invite to the pre-draft combine, and then going into draft night. So there's like that two and a half month period. What was the feedback you're getting at this point? Yeah, so first I'll tell you about uh, being the last invite at the Combine. I'm actually sitting in my apartment studying for a final, and I get a phone call from my agent, and he's like, pack your bags. You're going to Chicago. And I was like, "Like, what happened? And he's like, you got to pay your way there. <laughs> That's unbelievable. And get a hotel room. And if someone drops out, like, you're in. And... I went there and someone like luckily dropped out. I got in, we're doing like all the testing, like the body fat, the reach, the vertical wingspan, uh, wingspan. And again, that thought of never playing in America crept back into my (laughs) mind when they were testing all that stuff. And I just wanted to get to the five on five stuff. And I thought I played pretty well. Kind of just went from there. Did you meet with any teams at the combine? (laughs) So everyone was doing meetings for like two to three hours. And I met with one team the entire week and it was the Atlanta Hawks. Okay. So I think, I think it was because I was literally put into the combine at seven in the morning when it started at nine, that all the interviews were taken up. Gotcha. Gotcha. Probably wasn't your wingspan that they didn't want to interview you. <laughs> it's definitely the late entry and not your wingspan. Uh, I, but there's like a so there's a month gap now. There's a month gap. You go to the combine. You have one interview in a week. You're the last guy sort of in. You paid your way. You're like a guy you know paying for a G League tryout. You're the Jonathan Simmons of the NBA draft combine, if you will. Then there's a month before the draft. In my mind, like you know, I was a lottery pick even guys that aren't lottery picks that kind of know they're going to get drafted. They'll like pay their way to New York or their agent will pay their way to New York. And they'll, they'll sit in the stands at Madison square garden or Barclays or wherever the draft is. And they'll get to walk down on the stage and shake in my case, David Stern's hand or Adam Silver's hand. So there's this sense like that every NBA player has this amazing draft night story. Not the case for you. No, (laughs) I, uh, there was no way in heck I was (laughs) paying my way to New York. To be embarrassed like that. I heard from my agent that there might be a few teams in play, but there wasn't anything like that was positive or promised. And actually on draft night, he called me like four or five times and was like, this team wants to draft you, but send you overseas immediately. And we turned it down every time and kind of just bet on myself. So paint the picture for me then. You're with your family. You're back in Pittsburgh. You're sitting around. Are you watching the draft? Are you too nervous to watch the draft? What's going on? 
Well, I don't watch the first round because it's safe to say I wasn't I wasn't going then. We were out on the porch, yeah, uh, doing what Pittsburgh people do, having a few Schlitz lemonades and lemonades. Uh, um, what do Pittsburgh people drink? What is the beer of choice? Natty's. It's called Iron City Light. Iron City Light. It's pretty okay. much Coors Light with ice in it. Gotcha. And yeah. turned on the second round and kind of just was disappointing. I mean, every person's dream, no matter. If you're the last pick or or whatever, you would you would love to hear your name called on that night as a basketball player, and unfortunately, it didn't happen. And I think maybe three or four minutes after the draft ended, Sam and Brett called me and gave me a good deal and went from there. All right, we have more with TJ, but first, a word from today's sponsors. Buying tickets can be complicated and confusing, but there's a simpler way to buy with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every type of live event. Whether you're catching your favorite musician on tour, shopping for the perfect gift, or searching for a last-minute deal to see your favorite NBA team, SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. Nothing beats being there in person for the biggest plays of the year, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone and it's by far the easiest way I've found to shop for tickets. I can be anywhere and with just a few taps, I can instantly find seats. I actually just use SeatGeek to buy tickets to a Broadway show. SeatGeek is designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever. SeatGeek saves you time and money by searching multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find amazing deals. And to get the most bang for your buck, SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value to help you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. Make SeatGeek your go-to app for finding the best deals on every type of ticket from sports and concerts to comedy and theater. And guess what? SeatGeek has a special NBA offer running through All-Star Weekend. First-time purchasers can get $30 off any NBA ticket between now and February 19th. Just use promo code JJPOD, J-J-P-O-D, for $30 off any NBA purchase, not just games between now and February 19th, any game. So even if you've been eyeing an April matchup, you can act now and save $30. That's promo code JJPOD for $30 off NBA tickets, or just go ahead and use promo code JJ for $20 off any first-time purchase. I also want to thank our other sponsor on today's show, Mattress Firm. Everyone knows how important stretching is before an event. So does Mattress Firm except it's your dollar. Your budget stretches further when you're shopping at America's Neighborhood Mattress Store. It's a true home run, and you'll have a ball. They're the head coaches when it comes to mattress expertise. But know this, they are more than mattress experts. They have a game plan that helps you transform your mattress into a bed. From adjustable bases and sheets to headboards and bedroom decor, they have you literally and figuratively covered up like your favorite cornerback. Go to mattressfirm.com slash podcast to see what deals are happening as I read this sentence to you. They even offer you a 120-night sleep trial to ensure perfection and a 120-night low-price guarantee so you know you paid the perfect price. Talk about a one-two punch, a knockout, if you will. Score big with a perfect bed. Head to mattressfirm.com slash podcast to get the play-by-play on how you can monumentally improve your sleep today, tonight, and tomorrow. And now back to TJ McConnell. I'm going to I'm gonna get a little sidetracked here, but I'm trying to picture you. You're very hard on yourself. You're very intense. We kind of share that in common. And 
I think both of us have the tendency sometimes to go to like a dark place and envision sort of the worst case scenario. We 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 both call it staring down the barrel. <laughs> and I can remember unfortunately, I can remember 2 weeks before the draft I got arrested for a DUI and uh, I remember sitting in jail and thinking to myself, my career's over. I'm not going to get drafted. I will be lucky to get an overseas deal. Like everything that I had worked for, that didn't happen. No, <laughs> but that was my that was my dark place, circa draft. Um, so you go to summer league, you, you you play well, you get the training camp invite, but at this point, there's there's like very little chance of you making the team. There's like six point guards in training camp. Most people probably you know haven't heard of you. You don't have a big name. What's your mindset going into camp? I mean, I think you nailed it. Little to no one knew who I was. So I think my mindset was to go in and make a lasting impression by how hard I worked on and off the court and just tried to do things the right way and be a professional. I kind of had to teach myself how to be a professional. We had a very young team and, you know, just on the court, just being like a Tasmanian devil out there and and just running all over the place. Do you remember the moment when they told you you had made the team? Yeah, so we had practice. We had finished our last preseason game, and then we had practice the next day. And I went downstairs in the locker room, and people were getting called up but not coming back down to mm-hmm. the locker room. So the staring down the barrel thing started to creep <laughs> back into my mind, and Coach Brown just like made it dramatic. He called me up there, and he sat me down, and I was like profusely sweating like – this was make or break for me. And he goes, my assistant coaches wanted to cut you, but I decided to keep you. And at that point, emotions like ran high for me. The room like literally started to spin because you never thought that I would make it there. And it was just a special day. I remember the very first conversation we had back in September. It was like the first week everybody was back after Labor Day. And you, me, and Nick Stauskas were grabbing a bite to eat after open gym. And the first thing you said to me was, I shouldn't be here. <laughs> I'm not supposed to be here. <laughs> and I was like, first of all, I was like, yeah, that's, uh, that's great that he still carries that chip on his, you know, chip on his shoulder. But I didn't realize at the time, like there were, there were six point guards in camp. Some of them had guaranteed deals. You didn't, and you still don't. And then <laughs> you and Cuff signed the two worst deals ever. So then you make the team. You only really make the team. You start. You start your very first game, right? Not the first game, but I start like eighteen games in my okay. rookie year. Your first game was against Boston, right? Yes. In the Garden. Not one of my fondest <laughs> memories. Do you want me to segue into what happened to me? What happened to you on your first game? So I'm warming up like. I'm like, oh, this is awesome. Like in the TD Garden, I didn't know how much I was going to play. And I was the friggin' first guy off the bench. And I come in and I'm guarding Isaiah Thomas. And he comes down and they call a play and scores at will. Just scores. Probably the easiest bucket I've ever seen anyone get. We go down on offense. I don't touch the ball. And then we come back. And I look over at Brad Stevens, their head coach, and he goes, Again, same play again. And Isaiah Thomas, 
again, scores the easiest bucket I've ever seen. We go back down on offense, and mind you, I'm the point guard. I don't touch the ball. And we come back down, and I look over at Brad. Isaiah, again. Same play, again. And Isaiah scores again. I come back down on offense, don't touch it. And for the, what, what is it, the fourth? Fourth time. And final time, he comes down. And my help defender like saw me get beat three times in a row, so he stepped up and he drops it off. And I, in turn, get subbed out. And I said, I am so screwed. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I don't know what to do. I can't guard anyone. And that was the welcome to my NBA moment. That in was. The first four minutes of my career. That was. We've all had those. We've all had those. <sighs> uh, the first time I ever checked in against the Detroit Pistons, the bench like cooed at me, like they were like, "Oh, it's his easy money. He's dead meat," and they just abused me five straight times on the floor, <clears throat> and I got subbed out. <laughs> so I can relate to that. The first two years of being on this team and being a part of this process, I would imagine for someone as competitive as you has been has been frustrating. You guys were shitty. Your rookie year, you won 10 games. Hard fought 10 games. (laughs) (laughs) Hard fought 10 games. Uh, A well-deserved 10 victories. Last year, I think 28. Is that right? 28. Probably would have won more if Joe had been healthy for the whole season. But really just like a non-winning environment, but a competitive environment. And now you've transitioned into playing on a team with real playoff aspirations. What's sort of been the difference that you've noticed either amongst your teammates, amongst coaching staff, the staff in general, in terms of expectations in those first couple years, or even goals versus what we have now? Yeah, I think for our first year, expectations were set pretty low, but I don't think they expected us to win those hard-fought 10 games. I thought we were expected to win a little more, but we didn't have any bad dudes on our team, so... For as bad as we were, it was still great to come in every day and work, and the culture was kind of being set in place. And then the next year, we added a few pieces, and, I mean, we get Joel back, and we kind of take off and show that if we added a little bit more, we can be pretty good. And we win 28 games, and, you know, it, it was still hard. I think we started off one in, like, 10 or 11, and I thought, you know, here we go again. And like you said, as a competitor, it's from going to two Elite Eights in college and winning like 60-plus games in two years to losing 72 my first year and then however many the next year, it was tough. And then we added guys like you and Amir and you know running other pieces to take us to the next level. And although I think we should have a little bit of a better record this year, we're going in the right direction. Did you feel any pressure at all? Because like I feel like I've always been on competitive teams, and there's there's always been like that pressure to win. My last year in Orlando was not like that. You know, I got traded to Milwaukee at the trade deadline, but those first 54 games of that season, I think we were we were in sort of tank mode. Yeah. But other than that, I've always felt like like high stakes, high pressure. Was it different, or did you feel pressure because you were kind of fighting for your own individual position in the league? Yeah, with us, I'm not sure a lot of people took our team seriously my rookie year. Yeah. And maybe even a little bit last year. So I kind of put this pressure on myself where, like, I have to go out and prove that, you know, I belong here because I think people would say, I mean, they won 10 games. Anybody could have played that year. And then next year, 
you know, people will say what they will, but I just had to continue to, to try to prove them wrong and, and show them that I belong. And, and even this year, I think I'm going to have to do that every year of my career, to be honest, <laughs> but the first two for sure. Well, I don't think you ever can get to a place where you're comfortable. I hate to say this, but like, there's never been a point in my career where I've like, I'm really comfortable. I think when you lose that edge, like for guys like me and you, like it's really hard to compete at this level without that without that like feeling of like always looking over your shoulder and thinking, you know, my days are numbered. I've got to, I've got to prove it. The thing that's interesting to me is this was a situation. I know Jay Rich was here. I don't know if that was before you. I know Elton Brand was here. Those guys didn't really play. Jay Rich was rehabbing. Elton was just kind of here to, to be a veteran voice in the locker room. Last year, Gerald Henderson played. But up until this year, like your experience has been largely with guys your age, largely with guys that are in their second or third year or first year, and you haven't had any real vets. What was what was that like those first two years versus this year? And if you want to gas me up, gas me up. I'm going to. <laughs> so hold your horses there, pal. Yeah, so like I said, it was hard for me my rookie year, even though we had great guys. I just kind of taught myself how to be a professional. And, you know, they, they taught me stuff, don't get me wrong. And then second year, Gerald came in and, and helped us all out. But, you know, this year with you and Jared, I kind of have said to a lot of people, it's weird that I finally found my vets in my third year. And I say that about you and Jared because you guys have helped me out so much and just teaching me about the league and, and like about life. I mean, you and Jared come up to, did you read the Wall Street Journal today? <laughs> no, I didn't. I'm sorry. You need to read more books, TJ. Uh, I just bought a few, I promise. All right, good. I would venture to say three of them are on wine. I would say you are correct. (laughs) We'll get to that in a second. We'll have more with TJ after this quick break. Hey, it's Bill Simmons, and the Ringer NFL Show has you covered for all your pro football needs. Sunday night, get Michael Lombardi and Tate Frazier's rapid reactions on GM Street on Tuesdays. The Ringer NFL Show with Robert Mays, Kevin Clark, and regular guest Danny Kelly break down all the biggest angles on Wednesday. GM Street again on Thursdays. Clark, Mays, and Danny are back at it again. And on Friday, GM Street's Friday Focus gives you all the insight you need for gambling and everything else. Don't forget about my podcast, too, on Mondays. The BS Podcast, Cousin Sal and I playing Guest Alliance. More importantly, The Ringer NFL Show. Subscribe right now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back with TJ McConnell. So I, I had this conversation with Kyrie on a, on a podcast a couple episodes ago, but we, we talked about NBA superpowers. And, you know, for most NBA players, like we, we all have like one superpower. It's why, it's why we're here. It's why we're one of the, the 450 chosen ones. Guys like Kyrie have like three. There's probably some guys that have four or five. But you, you have a superpower. Your, your mid-range jumper is nice, but that's not your superpower. <laughs> your superpower is your spirit. Your, I know you hate this word. Grit. <laughs> grit. <laughs> no, your grit, your edge. And for the most part, like you bring that to the game every night. Like That's sort of your base or your foundation. How hard is it to have that over the course of 82 games, though? Because there's got to be games where you're like, I just want to go out and play tonight, maybe knock down a few jumpers and get a win and, and call it a day. Like the level 
that you have to work yourself, the frenzy you have to work yourself into must be exhausting. Yeah. To try to like wind yourself up, if you will, (laughs) every night, it can be hard. And I try to bring that spirit as much as I can. You know, I think when I see our team needs it most is when I try to use it as much as I can. But I mean, there'll be games even like yesterday in Brooklyn. I don't think my spirit was quite there. And I thought that showed and I'm trying to bring it as much as I can, but there will be some nights that it's just not there. Is there anything you do to mentally or physically to get to that point? Because you are, it's, you're, you're working, you're, you're like a Tasmanian devil is how I would describe you. Yeah. I mean, it's, I got to be a crazy ass. Um, <laughs> a crazy ass. <laughs> I just, I come out onto the court and like, you know, pick someone up full court and 